So let's get into the word, Psalm 88. I don't know how much longer we'll be in Psalms. You know, usually we, I jump in Psalms when we finish one book, and then we, we look at some, and, and we've been back in it for quite a while, praying about timing and that. Maybe the next two or three weeks, we might jump either into Joshua, or there's a few New Testament books I'm considering before we go back to Joshua, and uh, so just be praying about that. But we got a great Psalm before us tonight. Uh, let's just read the introduction here and begin to set it up. It says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And this is the last psalm of the sons of Korah. There's a dozen of them. And so this is the last one we get in the psalms. To the chief musician, set to Mahalath, uh, Lianath, a contemplation of He-Man, the Ezraite. You didn't know He-Man was in the Bible, and here he is. It's not, it's not the masters of the universe, but there he is, He-Man there. So again, the sons of Korah, um, they didn't necessarily write this, but they put it together based on the contemplation or the thought that the Lord gave to He-Man, that uh, a word that He gave to him, and then it was a matter of him getting with the worship leader there, one of the worship leaders and musicians, and together this word that was given to him by the Lord was put together to music. And we talked a lot about the sons of Korah, and I'm not going to go deep into that tonight, but remember their father was a rebellious man, and you read about him in Numbers, and when he questioned Moses as an errant authority that the Lord had given to them, and uh, you know, it wasn't good enough for him to serve in the place God had put him, and God had put him in a great place to serve. And I've appreciated more and more the last few weeks the ministry of of the sons of Korah and those Levites that had the role of breaking down and setting up the tabernacle because we have a mini tabernacle outside here and uh, now that thing we, we've had a few challenges and yet God's kept it up and going and I shared Sunday morning I couldn't believe how much rain shea cloth can hold and boy that was a challenge Sunday morning so these guys they had a very important job and it was it was vital to the worship of the Lord and so forth and all of us all of us have a vital role in the body of Christ, and it's important that we're seeking the Lord in discovering the gifts that he has given to us and walking in those. And, and yet, again, the sons of Korah, their father was rebellious. Uh, you know, we know how the account goes. The earth swallowed him up. And yet his sons, they chose to follow the Lord. And boy, what a difficult place that is to be, to be in that place to say, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus, even if it costs me you know, a relationship with uh, family. And uh, yet Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace on the earth but a sword. It talks about, you know, what a son being divided from the father and, you know, a, a daughter and her mother and so forth. And that, that's not the ideal thing, but that happens at times. And, uh, you know, God's the giver of life and the one that gave us life. And these were valiant men and these are descendants of them now, but still walking faithfully with the Lord. Now, he man. It says that he is a Ezraite. It what, what this is, if it, you can look these verses up, I'm not going to read through them. They'll be up here. First Chronicles two five talks about the sons of Perez. And remember, the Chronicles is where you get genealogy, and Perez is a son of Judah. And so, if you read through the genealogy there, it talks about uh, Zerah, and then he had five sons, and one of them was Heman, or Heman. Um, I don't think this is the same He-Man that wrote 
the psalm here, but oftentimes what you'll find in the genealogy of the tribes, you'll see certain names popping up over and over again, just like in most family trees. Uh, you know, and oftentimes the child is named after the grandfather or the great-grandfather or, you know, so on and so forth. Because later on down the road in the day of Solomon, actually, we read about the he-man who seems to have written this psalm here, and it talks about this in 1 Kings 4, 30 through 31, and it's when Solomon asked for wisdom from the Lord, and it's speaking of that, and it talks about Solomon's wisdom excelling all the men of the east. And then it says in verse 31, he was even wiser than all the men, than Ethan, Ethan the Ezraite, and then it says He-Man and a few other guys. So what we can get from that is that, you know, the Bible talks about Solomon being the wisest man, obviously outside of Christ, that walked the earth. I mean, this guy was a zoologist. This guy studied nature. Uh, we get the Proverbs from him and so forth. Uh, the main thing we need to learn from Solomon is actually walk in the wisdom of the Lord uh, because uh, he got away from that for a while but came back to it at the end. But what we, gain, what we learn from this is that He-Man was obviously a man of great wisdom because it says Solomon, you know, and again, the Bible says he's the most wise man. He was even wiser than He-Man. And so that's not a knock on He-Man because God gifted Solomon with that wisdom, but you know what, it's talking about the great wisdom that God gave to He-Man himself. And so he obviously was a, a man of the Lord. The Bible talks about wisdom coming from above. It's just something we should all be praying and asking for. And I love James because the Bible says if we lack it, if we ask, he'll give it. And uh, am I the only one here that lacks wisdom tonight? Uh, if you say, I don't lack it, then you might be the one that needs it the most in the room. And uh, God wants to give it. And yet he says to ask in faith, to ask believing. To ask believing, Lord, uh, give us wisdom, and we believe you want to direct us and guide us. And so we're asking in faith, knowing that, again, you are uh, the God of all wisdom. And so we're going to ask for not wisdom beyond our years, but we want to ask for wisdom from above. It also says here about this psalm, it's set to Mehalath uh, Leonith. A couple things with this. Uh, the word lianeth seems to refer to an unknown instrument of some sort. And then the phrase itself, and this is where the psalm begins to get set up, the content of it, uh, meheath, or mehaleath, it, it, it means of sickness of affliction. It means concerning affliction and sickness. And this psalm is a psalm that was written in a time of great distress in the life of He-Man. Uh, it really is considered the darkest of all the Psalms by far. And that throughout the Psalm, there is a crying out to the Lord in the midst of affliction, and you never see necessarily a turning point. I believe there's one there, but most commentators say you never really see a turning point of, you know, I've laid it down, now there's joy coming me, to me. I believe that is here, and we'll get to that, because it talks about hope coming in the morning. So this was written by this man in a time of great distress. But listen, make no mistake about it. This psalm is more a messianic psalm about Jesus Christ during the time of his arrest and crucifixion than He-Man's life. 
he obviously was going through a great time of distress. And in that time, he cried out to the Lord. And the Spirit of God not only came upon him to allow him to voice his distress and to cry out to God, but the Lord used this time of great trial in He-Man's life to give a prophetic word about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll see tonight that it's a prophetic word about what the Lord has done for us, about how He's bore our sorrow and our grief and the wrath due us. And when you understand that and when you look at it proper from that point in the full context of the Scripture, a psalm that a lot of people come to and they're like, oh, I don't even know if I want to read this one or not. I might just skip over it. You know, all of a sudden it moves from a thing of, of, of you know, maybe stress to a thing of, of great rejoicing. Because you recognize this is what Jesus has done for me. As it's about Jesus laying down his life for mankind and laying down his grief even as a man so that we can again, cast our sorrows and grief upon him. So let's get into it now. It starts by saying, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. And again, we're taking this all from the angle, and I'll show you more as we get into this, how this is messianic, how this is about Jesus. We've talked about He-Man. We're going to put He-Man to the side over here. He's going over with Skeletor and everyone else. And this is going to be focusing on Jesus. Because it's a messianic psalm. O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Now listen, as God, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the God of our salvation. You know, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three separate, yet one. And absolutely, there's salvation found in no other name under heaven. And we see Peter declaring that in Acts 4. When, once again, he's preaching the gospel. In fact, uh, he says specifically, Acts 4.12, Nor is there any salvation, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the God of our salvation. Again, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He went to the cross. We were under condemnation on our sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Christ came to make that way, that bridge back to God who is holy. Sin and death came through one man and salvation comes through one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father poured his wrath out upon the Son. Jesus laid down his life, died for us, but the grave couldn't hold him. He rose from the grave and again, salvation is only found in him. And I hope and pray tonight all of us here have called on the name of the Lord. And if you haven't, listen, salvation is available today. Today's the day of salvation. It's time to get right with God. Now, we also got to recognize that, listen, Jesus is 100% God, and when he came to the earth, he became 100% man without ceasing to be God. And as a man, Jesus put his hope in the Father at every single turn. And he put his hope in the Father as a man to resurrect him after he atoned for our sins. He cried out to the Father. He looked to the Father. Now listen, as God, he obviously raised himself as well because you can't, you know, separate God. In fact, he even said, destroy this temple, and in three days later, I will raise it. And so this moves into a mystery about, you know what, God and Jesus being man and God. And listen, it goes way above way above our ability to be able to comprehend. But one thing we do know is that God 
came and took on form of a man, became a man to die on the cross for us. And he set that example as a man who honored the Father and put his hope in the Father at every single turn. Now, so it says, O Lord, God of my salvation. And the Lord, go, again, Jesus going to the cross, he knew he'd be resurrected. He absolutely knew that. And then he says, I've cried out day and night before you. And this isn't a thing that Jesus started crying out. Uh, as, as we'll get into this, and we'll see specifically reference to the prayers that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and the week of passion and so forth leading to the cross. But for the Lord, it, it wasn't just one night that he cried out. It wasn't in the garden that we read about, you know, we haven't read about the, the ministry of the Lord for all these years in the Gospels, and all of a sudden, oh, wow, Jesus is praying. Look at that. You see the Lord setting that example for us in all of his days, crying out to the Father, looking to the Father, being a man of prayer at every single turn. Uh, so many passages like this in the Gospel. Luke 6, verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain and pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Let me ask you, when was the last time you continued all night in prayer to God? There's some times when we are called to pray all night. We should be a people that pray without ceasing in the sense that we keep a communication going with God throughout the day. You know, we don't want to fall into that pattern where we kind of get up and we you know, give God our three minutes in the morning and we say that prayer. And then throughout the day, he's not before us. But we want to be a people that throughout the day, we are, you know, in fellowship with the Lord. Now, obviously, you got to go and do your job and interact and so forth. And we're called a peculiar people in the Bible, but I don't necessarily see a call to be weird in the Bible. So it's not a call where, you know, I'm just going to walk around and, you know, it looks like I'm talking to myself. But it's a matter of, I think of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah when, you know, he heard word of how the wall was, you know, down still in Jerusalem and the great distress, and he was the king's cupbearer, and he was always supposed to be joyful, and he wasn't joyful. He was sullen over what was going on, and the king said, Nehemiah, what's going on? Because that could have cost him his life, just being sullen in the king's presence because he was supposed to be in this place of, I'm the king's cupbearer. I got the best job in the world, and he said, what's going on? And it says before Nehemiah answered, and it says Nehemiah prayed. But it's not a picture of Nehemiah saying, oh, I'll be right back, and when I'm praying, come back. He prayed while he was right there in conversation. And absolutely, the Lord wants us to be a people that are crying out day and night, that are walking in fellowship with the Lord, that got the word before us, that got the Lord before us, that are casting our cares before him, giving him praise and thanks. Man, you get up, you get going, you walk out, you see the sun out. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful, beautiful evening. Coming in the sanctuary tonight. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful air conditioning, you know. Just giving them praise and thanks. As you see, see things unfolding, oh, Lord, we lift that up to you. We lift this situation up to you. Pray for this person over here that, you know what, looks so far from you. Pray that they'll come to know you. And in fact, Jesus, throughout his ministry, throughout the word, gives us that encouragement to be a people of prayer. I love Luke 18, 1. It's where the Lord goes into the parable of, you know, the woman who seeks after the judge's approval, and it's a picture of her recognizing only the judge could help her. And the Lord gives us that example that we should be seeking the Lord in that manner. He's the one that can change this situation. 
He's the one who is on the throne. At the beginning of that, in Luke 18, 1, Jesus said, men ought to always pray and not lose heart. Did you hear that tonight? Do not lose heart, but always pray. The enemy of our soul, listen, he's making a desperate effort to make us lose heart. Is that a... <laughs> I don't want to embarrass anybody here, so... I actually made the mistake of having my phone in my pocket, and I have gotten multiple text messages over and over. It just keeps... So I'm, I'm there with you there, so... Anyhow... The Lord tells us men ought to always pray and not lose heart. And you better believe that there is a great effort by the enemy of our soul to make us lose heart, to make believers lose heart. In the midst of everything that's going on in the world today, you know, it started, you know, it, there's so much going on, but with this pandemic and so forth, the suicide numbers are skyrocketing. That's the result of many things, but... Listen, in the midst of it, it's people losing heart. And you're seeing with all so much turmoil and so forth. And at times I'm even running into different believers and they're kind of getting beaten down and so forth. And wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's look to the Lord. Because if our eyes get off the Lord again, you're going to lose heart really quickly. And then Luke 21, 34, the Lord says, Take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And the day, talking about the day of the Lord coming on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch therefore and pray always. So he's saying here, listen, in the midst of everything going on, and boy, there's a lot going on in the world, isn't there? All kinds, I have, has anyone been watching the news? <laughs> so much going on and the Lord says, listen, take heed to yourself. Boy, if everyone would just take heed to their self. If every Christian would just take heed to their self, not in the sense of being selfish, but stepping back and say, what are my behaviors? Am I reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I doing what God's word has called me to do? Am I being a man, a woman, a prayer in the word? Am I quick to say I'm sorry when I wrong somebody? Am I prideful? Do I, you know what, look down on others? Am I in a place where, you know what, I'm a worshiper of the Lord. What, what, take heed to myself. So take responsible for your, responsibility for yourself. Make sure you're not weighed down with sin and you're just caught up in the cares of this life. And boy, there's a lot of people, they are just wrapped up with the cares of this life. They're more concerned about holding on to this stuff that you could have a huge grip on it can still be taken like that than looking to the Lord. Now, we need to manage things here, but we want to look to the Lord first. And he says in all of this, watch therefore and pray always. And then he says that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Now, the only way you can be counted worthy to escape is that you've called on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus plus prayer that saves us. It's calling on Jesus. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Him alone. But we are called to be a people who pray always. And the, verse, first, the ver first verse of this, the Lord saying, I cried out to you day and night. Notice as well, listen, he cried out. And we're going to see this theme as we get deeper into this. And we're still setting things up. We'll, we'll get going a little quicker here. But listen, he's crying out because as prophesied in Scripture, 
Jesus was a man of many sorrows when he was on earth. Absolutely, he also had the joy of the Lord. We're called to rejoice in all things. It's God's will for us, and the Lord walked in the perfect will of the Father. But absolutely, he was a man of many sorrows. And in the midst of those sorrows, what did he do? He cried out to the Father. He took those things to the Father in prayer. He addressed those things biblically. Isaiah 53.3, another messianic prophecy speaking of Jesus. Old Testament verses about the Lord's first coming. It says, he is despised and rejected by man, men, a man of many sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And so we should ask the question, why was the Lord a man of many sorrows? And the answer is very easy. He was a man of many sorrows because of man's sin and rebellion. Sin grieved his heart. It broke his heart. He saw the effects of it everywhere he went. And his heart broke over man's rebellion. He also absolutely knew he was going to go to the cross and atone for the sins of man. And as we look around the world and see all the things going on, listen, there's a lot of temptations. There's temptations to get angry and to sin. The Bible says be angry and do not sin. There's temptation to get a heart full of despair and lose heart. There's a temptation to not, you know what, take heed to yourself and look to the Lord, but take heed to yourself and just get selfish and just say, I'm going to look out for mine. But as we look what's going on with mankind and the things even going on in our nation tonight, I hope and pray that all of us, as we see it, it grieves our heart. Because we look around and you can see these are the effects of sin. In some cases, specific sin. In other cases, this is just the product of man in the garden saying, you know what, God, we're going to do it our own way. Because that's what happened in the garden. We're going to do it our own way. We will be, we're listening to the lie of the serpent. We believe him that he said not to eat of the tree or we'll be like you. We believe you're holding something from us, so we're going to eat of this tree and be our own God. When God said, the day you eat of it, you're going to die. And he spoke of physical death setting in and spiritual death and separation from a God who is holy and without sin from man who would become sinful and eating of that tree and you look around and you see it and we should grieve over that sin we should grieve over our sin but we also should know that listen the lord's the answer the bible speaks to these things listen Acts 17 26 says that we have all come from one blood <laughs> let me tell you something let me educate you tonight there is only one race it's called the human race Amen. there's one race the human race Real science teaches that, that we all come from two descendants. But you know what they've been teaching in the schools the last hundred years? That we evolved from apes, and different races evolved from apes at different times. And then they say that evolution is how we got here, and evolution teaches survival of the fittest. So what every race is stronger, it's going to snuff out that other race. This is what Hitler built his whole ideology on. Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood, was a racist and a Satanist. Amen. 
And she did what she did based on Darwin's theory of evolution. Darwin himself said, listen, if you find there's something that goes beyond this tissue, I'm probably wrong. Well, guess what? He was. But this is stuff that's taught in our schools. And if they really believe that, then they should step back and say, listen, survival of the fittest, which is also a motto of Satanism, just let it play out. The coronavirus, they should say, let it play out. It's here to thin the herd to get rid of the weak people. Now, listen, those are all lies. But that's what's taught to our children. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Bible does not speak of races. It speaks of cultures. It speaks of tribes. It speaks of tongues. It does speak of nations, but it points all them going all the way back to Adam and Eve. And Acts 17, 26, that we all come from one blood. Let me tell you tonight, if you're white, and let me tell you tonight, if you're black, brown, somewhere in the middle, like a lot of us, the only thing that makes you different as a white man from a black man is the amount of melatonin in your skin. I've seen so many people over the years that were gripped with prejudice because of the way they were raised, how they were indoctrinated, when they heard that truth, when they looked at real science, not pseudoscience, which gets shoved down our throat nonstop, and I'll just say it, this COVID stuff, this separation, it's pseudoscience. Ain't none of that's based in actual truth. It's, we're going to guess. And now they're starting to say, oh, yeah, we might have been wrong about that. Well, maybe you're trying to usher in something else. But we come from one blood. One blood. That's truth that sets people free. I'll tell you another truth. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's no righteous, no not one. But boy, there's a lot of people standing in self-righteousness today because of their cause. On all, kind, on all the sides of the aisles. Listen, we better humble our hearts because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The next truth, there's only one Savior. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who atoned for our sins, rose from the grave, and stands ready to save. The fourth truth, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no partiality with God. And I'll tell you this, in Christ, in Christ, we are of one heart and one mind in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And as we grieve for this world, what's going on, we better be standing in the truth and proclaiming it. And if we say, well, you don't have any answers, then you need to get in God's word because God, God's word has the answers to these things. Verse 2. <laughs> Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. These refer to the prayers that Jesus prayed on the way to the cross. In John 12, 27, they were nearing Jerusalem, and he said, My soul troubles me. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. John 12, 27 and 28. And then I'm not going to read it, but in Matthew 26... 
36, it talks about them coming to Gethsemane the night he was betrayed. Verse 38, he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And Luke's gospel talks about because of the pressure upon him, he began to sweat blood. Why? Because again, he bore our sin. He knew that there was going to be a separation from the Father while he was on the cross because he who knew no sin became sin for us. He knew he was going to bear our wrath. Again, my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to the grave. And we need to rejoice tonight because, listen, he laid down his glory, hear this, to take on our sorrow, to take on our troubles, and so that we can lay our sorrows and our troubles at his feet and take up his glory. Are you doing that? Again, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. That's not cheap. The Lord took on our sorrow, took on our troubles, took on our sin, took the wrath due us so that we can come to him for salvation and then daily cast our cares upon him, lay those things at, our, at his feet, and then walk in the joy of the Lord no matter what's going on in the world around us. Even in the midst of, listen, very much looks like the birth pains that the Lord described leading up to the coming of the Lord. We've been referring to this a lot lately. But Mark 13 is one of those chapters where the Lord is speaking of the end of the age, the signs before his coming. And he says, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am he and deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. And then he says, do not be troubled, for such things must happen but the end is not yet. And you go read about the Olivet Discourse, wars and rumors of wars, kingdom versus kingdom, nation versus nation. That's not just talking about nations you get in the Greek. That's talking about ethnic wars. That's talking about people groups. That's talking about worldviews colliding and crashing. Listen, if we are not already in a civil war as a nation, a cold civil war, we may be in one very soon. I don't say that tonight to put fear in anybody, but we got to deal in truce. Let's make sure we stand first and foremost in the Lord Jesus Christ in that. But the Lord says in all of it, do not let your heart be troubled. And the Lord took our troubles. Again, he said, my soul is full of troubles. He took our troubles so we can lay our troubles at his feet. And when he says, don't let your heart be troubled, do not be troubled, it's legit. It's not someone just saying, hey, don't worry, man. Be happy. <laughs> He's saying, don't let your heart be troubled. I am your Lord. We got to be able to minister, minister these things to our kids. Monday night. One of my daughters was troubled because all over her social media, they were saying, we're going to come to a Tascadero and assassinate white families tonight. And her heart was troubled. And my other daughter's like, what's this about? And I explained, and she's like, what's that have to do with us? But you know what? The Lord uses those opportunities for good. 
And I've been talking to them about these things going on and so forth, trying to use it as a platform to educate them in truth, talking about one blood, talking about us all being sinners, talking about loving your neighbor as yourself, educating them in true science, not in this nonsense taught down the road there at that high school. I said, listen, the word of God says, unless the Lord watches over the house, the watchman watches in vain. The Lord is watching over our house. We're in God's hands. We need to pray. And then I also said, practically, listen, your dad grew up in the hood. He locks doors at night. And uh, I got protocol in place if someone comes to the door. Because, listen, Jesus also said, sell what you have and buy a sword. And there's a place for a self-defense. So first of all, we're going to approach this spiritually. We're going to pray right now, and we did. And then practically, we ain't going to get nutty or crazy. Last thing I ever, ever, ever want to have to do is use a weapon on somebody or have to choke them out with my bare hands. That's one of the problems when you wrestle your whole life. You kind of know what you can do, and sometimes that can get you in trouble. (laughs) But girls, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be troubled. Saint tonight, do not let your heart be troubled. This might just be the beginning of hearing of violence and threats, no matter, you know what, what your cultural background is or where you stand on this scale set up by men. Again, it's a melatonin thing in your skin is what it comes down to. But wicked men have promoted these things. And listen, most of the men and women in the world saying we got the answers teach the lies of Darwin. It's a big fat lie. And some people say, oh, you're so ignorant tonight, you redneck country preacher. You think you came from a monkey. Dude, what's wrong with you? And sadly, you know what? There's a lot of pastors peddling that lie today. And a lot of revered ones. Guys like the great Timothy Keller. We came from monkeys. Dude, you need to go read your Bible. You are peddling a lie and should be immediately stripped from any pulpit that you would go into and anywhere in the world. And yet, oh, this wise, learned man, he's put it together God made us through monkeys, and those six days are actually millions of years. Well, why didn't God just say that then? Does that mean the new heaven and new earth is going to take 14? Are we at like 14 million years now or billion? Is the new heaven and earth going to take that long? If the first one took that long, the second one's better. We might be sitting around for 30 billion years for the new Jerusalem to come down. I digress. Oh, boy, we got to get through this psalm here. (sighs) I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength. Adrift among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your, from, and and, and who are cut off from your hand, verse 6, you lay me in the lowest pit in darkness of the depths. 
This speaks really of three times of darkness in the life of Christ. You can go to Jerusalem today, and you can go to Caiaphas, the high priest's house. I've had the privilege of going there multiple times. And you go down in this house, and there is a pit in there that is a jail cell. And when the lights are turned out, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. In John 18, it speaks of the Lord going to Annas, the high priest, first, and then to Caiaphas, the high priest, second. We won't get into all that tonight. We got into that in John of multiple high priests. But this is speaking of Jesus going down to that prison. And you know what's awesome today? That in Jerusalem, that is predominantly ran by the Jews, and all Israel will be saved, but 90%, 98% of them, they say right now, aren't. But you go to that, you go in that pit, you know what Psalm's there? It's Psalm 88. Because Psalm 88 was probably recited, this psalm by the Lord, when he was in that pit. And I've been thinking about all my friends in Israel that are Jews that I've met over the years, and I pray for them all the time by name for their salvation, and all the things going on right now. I know they've heard so many end-time sermons, because they're all over the place when you go through Jerusalem. And I've been praying, oh, Lord, open their eyes now. Open their eyes now. The Lord in that pit most likely was praying this prayer. We also know the darkness on the cross. And then Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, when he talks about a wicked and perverse generation looking for a sign, he said, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. As he was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. Now listen, the Lord didn't go to hell and was tormented there. He went to the belly of the earth and he led captivity captive. There was a place of darkness, but in the middle there was a place called Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise that the Old Testament saints that had faith in the coming of Christ went to. And he went and he loosed them because now their sins had actually been atoned for. All those bulls and goats never took away their sin. It was fulfilled in Christ. This talks about him emptying himself of strength and indeed he did because as a man listen even in the garden they said hey we're looking for that Jesus of Nazareth and John's gospel he says I am he and they all fell down on their back when he said I am he and he had the strength to rip them to shreds right there in fact he said I can call out for 12 legion of angels and they'll come down and they'll ransack this place right now but he emptied himself of his strength for us Remember that when you're tempted to use your strength to act in the flesh. Let's look to the strength of the Lord. And then listen, it says, he was cut off from the hand of the Lord. He was cut off from the living, why? So that we can live. Cut off from the Father, why? So we can come to the Father. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, he says, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You have, laid, you have afflicted me with all your waves, Selah. And indeed, he bore our wrath. Isaiah 53, 4, again, another Old Testament prophecy. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, but he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our, for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And when the Lord was there in Caiaphas' pit, he knew he was about to take the wrath of the Father upon himself for the sins of all mankind. We can't even begin to comprehend that. 
Listen, we see movies about the crucifixion of Jesus, and you see men beating him and so forth, and you're like, oh, what he went through is, that's nothing. It's something, but it's nothing. The wrath of the Father was placed upon the Son. That, that's something that we, we can't even begin to comprehend. It has to do with the holiness and the awesomeness of God who is without sin, who will not allow sin to come into the kingdom of heaven, lest heaven be tainted with the rebellion of mankind. People need to know he is the God of love, but he is the judge. And in his love for us, his son was judged for us, that if we call in his name, we'll escape that wrath from forever. Is that not good news? Oh, man. Our hearts should break for the person that says, I don't need you, Jesus. I'm a good guy. Oh, my goodness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Quickly, verse 8, he says, you have put away my acquaintances far from me. That sound like anyone you know? Jesus said they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And indeed they did. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and cannot get out. And remember, he came to his own first, the Jews, and he was such an abomination to the bulk of them. They said, we want this Barabbas. We want this murderer. We don't want this one who says he's Savior. Verse 9, my eye wastes away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. And indeed, he called on him daily. His hands were stretched out on that cross. And this most likely is a prophecy about the Lord on the cross being beat so much by the Roman guards and by the Jews that his eyes were so swelled that he couldn't see out of them. Because remember, they put a sack over his head and they punched him in the face repeatedly. These were Roman soldiers that knew how to throw a punch. They punched him repeatedly and they said, prophesy to us who hit you. And the Lord knew these men before they were knit in their mother's womb. Think as well about Samson. You're like, how did we get to Samson? Samson, even his rebelliousness, is a type of Christ. In that when he laid down his life, it brought a victory to Israel. When he pushed in those pillars, and remember when he did that, they had gouged out his eyes. Old Testament has all these pictures of Christ. We're an element of these men. It's a picture of the coming Christ because the Father was painting all these pictures so when Jesus showed up, they would know that it's him, that he's the Messiah, and that we can look and say, wow, Jesus is the Messiah. He's fulfilled all those prophecies. And I really believe in his eyes wasting his way. It's a picture he can't see. It's the fulfillment of Samson being a type of Christ because it says that he killed more Philistines in his death than he ever did in his life, bringing a victory to Israel through his death. And Jesus has brought the victory to mankind through his death, and then praise God, his resurrection. Verse 10, will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Sailor, think about that. Shall your love kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in dark and your righteousness in the lands in land in the land of forgetfulness well the answer in ourselves is no 
But praise God, listen, the, the answer to this, shall the dead arise and praise you, is yes in Christ. Because he's the first fruit of the resurrection. And in Christ Jesus, we know that we know that we know that at the coming of the Lord for his church, those that are dead in Christ will be resurrected and those that are alive and remain will be caught up and changed in the twinkling of an eye. And that's one of our blessed hopes as a Christian. Verse 13, but to you, Lord, I have cried out. And this is where I believe the hope is found in this. Because, oh, well, there's no hope in this. I've read all these commentaries like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you skip verse 13? But to you I cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. And so much of this, of this is about Christ going to the cross. And yet what happened in the morning? Again, three days later he rose from the grave. And they went there in the morning. And they said, he is not here for he is risen. And that's where victory was won again over sin, death, Satan, and hell in Christ. And listen, there's going to be times of darkness in our life. Seasons of trials and so forth. But in Christ, listen, there's victory. And there's great hope in the Lord. Listen, this too will pass. And that is good news. Psalm 35, for his anger is but for a moment, his, life, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen. Verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face far from me? I think about in Matthew, Matthew 27, as the Lord hung there on the cross, darkness had fallen on the land, and what did Jesus cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's a mystery here. Because God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are singular, yet they are one. And yet, as the Lord became sin for us, he cried out and said, Father, you've forsaken me. And it's been described as he was on the cross, the Father looked away. Because the Father cannot commune with sin. And yet it was out, as it was on the cross, you can't separate God. I mean, I guess you would argue the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit were on the cross in a way as well. There's a mystery there. But this is the thing that really was the grieving point of the Lord. He's going to take the wrath of man upon himself and become sin for us, and the Father doesn't commune with sin. That's how much Jesus loves you. Verse 15. We're almost finished here. I have been afflicted and ready to die for my youth. Jesus was a soldier, make no mistake about it. Early on in his life, he knew what he came to do. He was tempted in every way, yet he didn't sin. I suffer your terrors, I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me, your terrors have cut me off. They have come around me all day long like water, they engulf me all together and yet listen he endured how for the joy set before him listen to hebrews 12 1 and 2 therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great cloud of witness let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us looking unto jesus the author and finisher of our faith notice 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew all this was coming upon him, but for the joy set before him. And you know what the joy set before him was? It was two things. Fulfilling the will of the Father and making a way to save your soul. Isn't that wonderful? Your salvation was the joy set before Christ that drove him to walk the valley of the shadow of death called Psalm 88 to go and make a way of salvation for you. Don't question his love. And then finally, verse 18, love one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintance into darkness. Now, this is the second reference of his acquaintances and his friends fleeing from him at the cross. And they did. Listen, his acquaintances forsook him so we could get acquainted with him. Are you acquainted with Christ tonight? Can you shame into that? He wants you to get more acquainted with him. He wants us to have that heart that Paul had in Philippians 3.10 where he says that I may know him. And then one last thing here. This is the second time where he speaks of the affliction of the breaking up of fellowship. And we need to know this. Satan desperately wants to disrupt Christian fellowship. And it's important that we don't let him or his liars have that victory. I am convinced that a scripture verse that I always looked at as instruction from the Lord about fellowship is actually a prophetic end times verse. It's prophetic. I always looked at it and thought, well, this is just about people to get out of the habit of, you know, going in church and so forth. I think this is more than this now. I think that this is a push to break up Christian fellowship as we've known it from the time of the New Testament church birth till three months ago. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24, and we'll close on this. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And notice, you see the day approaching. That's not speaking of the coming of the Lord. In other words, the closer you see him coming, the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the more it's going to become the habit and manner of some to say, we don't assemble ourselves together. We don't do that. I personally believe there has been a big effort to break up Christian fellowship. I'm curious of how the same people, and this isn't a commentary on these things that have happened specifically in the last week, but I'm curious of how the same people have said, don't go out and go anywhere. No more than 10 of you can ever get together or saying, go out in the thousands into the street. I'm like, what? It's a commentary on that, not the other. Listen, we have a First Amendment right to protest, but we're also called to be a lawful assembly when we do it. 
Like, what, what happened to that? And the same people say, man, I, we uphold people's First Amendment right. Well, then why in the world were you trying to crack pastors' heads when they were saying, we need to get together in fellowship? That's called fuzzy math, people. That's called somebody lying. That's called an agenda. I'll look into the camera for that one. <laughs> and you know what grieves my heart? There are many, many pastors saying, this is the new norm. I hate it too. Church from now on is going to be pajamas and coffee in our living room. Doesn't that sound better anyway? Just make sure you send in your tithes and offerings. It's sad when you see the body of Christ losing its backbone. We need to do things with wisdom, but man, lay off the fear-mongering. Some of these guys, I got to be careful. I'll go on a rant right now because there's just some, some people that are. But you know what? I think a lot of these guys, their churches are non-essential in the first place because they're not even preaching the Bible or the gospel of Jesus Christ. So maybe it just fits. It might be a perfect fit. Yeah, you're non-essential. In fact, Paul said about the church of Corinth, he said, you're coming together is not for the better. Now, I want to be careful in that because we can't do anything without the Lord. And I don't want to come off cocky and arrogant, which I probably already have about 10 times in this message. So God grant me grace. But here's the Lord talking multiple times about the heartbreak of Christian fellowship being broken. Let's make sure we don't get so caught up in ourselves that we forget we're called to minister to others in the joy of bearing one another burdens and worshiping the Lord. A body only works when it's together. We're the body of Christ. And if you start isolating your body parts, guess what? The body gets sick really, really quick. Well, Heavenly Father, we praise you tonight. And thank you for your goodness, God. We desperately, desperately need your help, Lord. This nation desperately needs your help. We need a revival. We need a move of God. There needs to be repentance and calling out to the Lord. Let us start with us, Lord. Jesus, we thank you so much for what you did to us at the cross. I thank you for Psalm 88. Oh, it needs to be talked about more. It needs to be put up right there with Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. What a prophetic psalm about what you have done for us. I pray tonight we would leave here rejoicing in the Lord. And all the more, God, we would cast our cares and troubles and sorrows upon you, knowing you went to the cross to bear those things that we can walk in the joy of the Lord. We thank you for salvation found in you. And again, Lord, if there's any who have not called on your name tonight, whether they're with us or if they're watching online, I just pray that even now they call upon Christ. Listen, today's the day of salvation. We don't know if we're afforded tomorrow. You might get ushered into eternity tonight. Is Jesus your Lord or will he say, depart from me? I never knew you. I hope that makes your knees knock if you don't know him. And I hope you'd fall on those knees and call out to Jesus for salvation because he loves you and he bore your sins on the cross and he wants to save you. 
Lord, bless the rest of our time here, and we just thank you for your great goodness to us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.